Well, back in the um, back in the '90s, I went through a bit of a, um, a Jim Carrey phase. You know, Jim Carrey, the actor. I, I did, yeah. Um, it's in the '90s, and you know, uh, some of you might remember because I think some of those messages I actually wove in a couple of stupid quotes by him, like you know, "Alrighty then." It was just like one of those one of those things that his goofy humor, his facial expressions, and and I I liked the movies and uh, the mask. Embarrassed to say, both Ace Venturas, um, liar, liar, and he even came to have a, a special place for Dumb and Dumber. And um, don't judge. I know right now some of you, Paul, you're judging me right now. I know. But listen, if you ever for one second delighted in watching the Three Stooges, you have absolutely no room to cast stones at me. I like them too. Anyway, but there's, there, there's one particular um, movie that he did that was kind of outside the normal genre. And um, it's uh, intellectually intriguing. Um, and that's the movie, The Truman Show. Did anybody remember The Truman Show? Um, if you don't remember it, like the simple plot is the, the, the person, um, the character played by Jim Carrey is uh, Truman Burbank, is like this, this baby that's basically born onto this ginormous set and raised by people, actors in his life, only he has no idea that he's the star of a reality show. So he thinks everything's real. You know, his wife, his house, everything is real. Until he starts to suspect that it's not real and people are acting. Now, in the movie, his life is good inside the set. You know, he's got his cute little house, he's got his cute little wife, and he's got his car, he's got his job. But as soon as he starts to suspect that it isn't real, he kind of sends him on a mission to, to escape this sea haven, island city. And um, that's really the plot. And uh, it ends, the movie ends with the creator. He actually makes it to the edge of the set, you know, and, um, and the voice of the creator of the show comes on, and one of the things that the, that the creator of the, the show says, he says, you don't want to go out there because you won't survive out there. That is out in the real world, if I was to paraphrase what he's saying, is out in the real world, it's dangerous, it's corrupt. You're going to lose that nice little safe life that you have, that you have here in the Truman Show. Well, the show ends with him walking out, and that's how it ends out into the real world. He leaves the fiction behind. He leaves the, the pretend, superficial life that he used to have for the real, dark, painful, dangerous world. Now, it strikes me as I, come, as I study humans, as I study society, as most of us do at some level, is that actually, while the movie made us root for him, like, you gotta get out into the real world, what most people end up doing as humans is doing the opposite. We, we, we actually, create a sense of fiction about our lives to make it a little better than it is. That is, it's really hard for humans to come to grip with the truth of the way the world really is. Um, reminds me of that, that quote by Jack Nicholson, you can't handle the truth, right? And the fact of the matter is, most people can't. And so we construct lies or we construct half-truths to make the world just a little bit better, to make it a little bit more fictional. So people, and I mean this Humanity in general will, will tell themselves things like, well, you know, life after death means heaven if you're a fairly decent person, which is a fiction. Or tell, our things like, tell ourselves things like, 
You know, um, the problem really isn't in here. Like, humanity is basically good. The problem is systems out there, systems that are keeping people in poverty or distributing wealth unequally or a problem of racism or prejudice. It's, It's a problem with systems. It's not a problem with the human heart, which is, again, a fiction. Or the belief that somehow we as humans, because we are basically good, that somehow we can make the world a better place, which, again, is... Kind of like dressing up the world. It's like creating fiction. Instead of seeing the world as it really is and seeing ourselves as we really are. When a person becomes an authentic disciple of Jesus, that is to say when the spirit of the living God moves upon your heart and says, let there be life, and your heart comes alive, which Jesus calls a new birth. Paul calls it new creation. We begin to see the world as it really is, as a dark place, a fallen place, a broken place. We begin to see ourselves for who we really are, broken people. And that's where Jesus starts his sermon from last week. We looked at the very first words out of his mouth where he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. That is, they've come to see themselves for who they are. They recognize, as I said last week, that before God, apart from grace, that they are broken, flawed, unworthy, and incapable of changing their heart or saving their souls. That's, that's becoming self-aware, seeing yourself for who you really are. That's, that's like the beginning of the Christian life, and one of the authentic marks of a disciple is this sense of poverty of spirit. The second one we're going to look at today, it flows from the first one. That is, the person who truly sees themselves and sees the world for what it really is, not the Truman Show, but the reality of it, will not only be self-aware of one's own brokenness, but also mourn over it. That's what he says. That second full sentence of this amazing sermon. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This deep irony in this, as are some of these Beatitudes. It's like, okay, how is it that a person can be blessed or translated inwardly happy or inwardly joyful and at the same time mourn? Like, aren't those two mutually exclusive? How can a a joyful person be a mournful person? It's a really good question and one I hope to answer by the time we get to the end before we take communion. As with last week, I I want to proceed forward by just exploring the meaning of it. Like, what does it mean, actually, to mourn in the way that Jesus intended this statement? And then, how is it that a person who mourns can be inwardly joyful or blessed? Those are kind of the two directions again. As far as meaning, what does it mean to mourn? I mean, everybody in here knows feelings of grief or sorrow, or mourning. If, you know, if, it, if you were five and you lost your teddy bear and you love the teddy bear, you understand at some level what it is to mourn. I remember the first death I experienced was my, my little dog. It was a mutt named Tag. And it died, and I actually wrote a song lamenting the death of my dog that sounded kind of like the theme song from The Young and the Restless. And um, it was just, I knew what it went to be sad. And, um, and you do too, whether it's, you know, crashing your favorite car into a tree and, and realizing I don't have my favorite car anymore or, or something more serious like the, the death of a son, a daughter, 
mom, dad, spouse. Like, you know what it is to grieve. Every human knows what it is to grieve. What is it about this particular morning that's blessed? This M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. What is it about this sorrow that makes a person blessed and inwardly sweet? Well, the answer to the question in terms of what it means, let me just explore for a second. Like, what is it that the, the person mourns over in this verse? Like, the object of mourning. Some have suggested that um, the mourning that the disciple experiences is mourning over the broken world out there. That is, broken marriages, broken families, broken political systems, um, poverty, orphans. That maybe that's the mourning that Jesus has in mind here. And it, to be sure, like the disciple of Jesus, who sees the world as it really is, and recognizing that it's a world that has been alienated from God, is going to experience a sense of lament and mourn and sorrow over what we see. Jesus himself looked over Jerusalem who, before he went to the cross and said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long? I would have gathered you like a mother hen gathers her chicks. Like he, is, he looks out and he's broken by what he sees. That may be a secondary application of what Jesus means here, but I don't think it's the primary one. That is to say, I think... And I believe that what the disciple mourns over is his own heart. And the reason I believe that is because of the logic between the first beatitude and the second beatitude. The first one is, blessed are the poor in spirit. That is, they've come to see themselves for who they are. The second one naturally flows. After you recognize that you are impoverished in your inner being, the next step is actually to mourn over it. Instead of having this smug, kind of arrogant, yeah, I'm jacked up, there is an actual sorrow to it, like I'm, I'm messed up, right? The f- second flows from the first, which is why I think it's, 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 it's mourning over one's own heart, mourning one or one, over one's own inherent sinfulness. I, I believe that's, that's primarily what's in view. But there's differences. Like I said, every, 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 every human mourns. And, and at some level, every human mourns their own sinfulness. So what makes this distinctive? What makes this a blessed mourning? And here I'm going to draw on the wisdom of the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, where he wrote this. And he differentiates between a sorrow that leads to death and a sorrow that leads to life. He says, for godly grief, synonym, right? Sorrow, grief, remorse. Remorse might be a bit of a different word, but similar. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So he's saying there's a kind of sorrow that leads to life and a kind of sorrow that leads to death. And what's the difference between them? In addition to the fruits that they produce, I think one of the differences, one of the main differences, is the heart of the Christian disciple mourns the the, the heart of the issue, not the symptoms. That is the cause, not the results of sin. And that simply mourning over and sorrowing over the results of your inner sinfulness is itself not what Jesus has in mind. 
What do I mean by that? It's worth pausing and exploring because every one of us in this room knows what it is to sin. As a result, every one of us has a way in which we deal with it. And some of the ways we deal with it may not be biblical. We may be sorrowing over our own mistakes in the wrong way. Mourning cause versus symptoms. Some of the symptoms that we often mourn over, and I'm just going to give you three because they tend to be the most popular, is mourning over or feeling sorry about the consequences of one's actions. The consequences of sinful choice. Now, what I'm about to tell you is about, it will incriminate me. Actually, I think it was illegal, but hopefully the statutes of limitation exceed 34, 45 years, whatever. My mom and dad um, gave me a, a pellet gun, a Crossman rifle, when I was about 12 years old. Uh, 12, 12 years old, and they were never worried about me shooting my eye out. And um, they told me that as I was given this, this rifle, that um, I could shoot things, but nothing living, right? Nothing. And, uh, and I consented. If they would have handed me a legal paper, I probably would have signed it. But when they weren't looking, me and my two buddies, we pretty much decimated the bird population of Gallardy Road <laughs> without any sadness whatsoever. And minus one skunk. You ever try to shoot a skunk with a BB gun? It's not a pretty thing. Didn't feel bad about that. But there's this one time I'll never forget. And as soon as I say this, you're going to go, oh, Dan Decker's a horrible person. This one day, it was foggy out, and there was this beautiful red-tailed hawk. See? Yeah, you're doing it. <laughs> you're already appalled. Remember, this 35 years ago. I lined up my, my right rifle, and I'm a good shot. That's not an arrogant statement. It's just the truth. And I dropped that thing. And I didn't feel sad at all. But my father found the bird, the beautiful red-tailed hawk. And if you don't know anything about my dad, he's as close to a birder as you can get. Like, he knows almost every species of bird in Northern California. When we go out to Point Reyes, he wants to show me all of the different kinds of ducks. And it's actually kind of a joke around my sisters. It's like, here we go again, more birds. Well, he found this red-tailed hawk. And it was just one of those moments in my life when I experienced the wrath of my dad. And I felt horrible. But I didn't feel horrible about the fact that I took the life of a beautiful bird. I, I felt horrible because my dad was mad at me because of the consequences. And you know what happened? After the long period of time where he took away my rifle and I got it back again when they weren't looking, I started depleting the bird population of Gallardy Road again. Didn't change. Simply mourning over the consequences of your mistakes itself is not what Jesus has in mind. That's mourning over the symptom rather than the cause. You see? Or here's another symptom that we often mourn. Our feelings of guilt. Right? Those horrible feelings that we don't like, that we do everything to like, rid ourselves of through self-talk or good works, feelings of guilt. So, I exposed my past crime. Let's just say a, a wife lies to her husband about a purchase with a credit card. Instead of 
purchasing groceries, which she tells her husband, she purchases a pair of shoes. Of course, wives never do that, right? No. But she feels horrible about it. She just realized, I lied to my husband about what I bought. It feels horrible about it. And she decides, resolves in her own mind, that she's not going to do it again because she hates the feeling of guilt. I, I grew up in, in acreage, so there was little farms all the way around. And, and one of the things that dogs did was kill chickens. And they used to say that one of the ways to cure a dog from its chicken-killing instinct is to tie the carcass of a, of a chicken around its neck and, and let it rot. So that the dog has to deal with this stinky, rotten carcass and in so doing teaches it, I never want to do this again. Guilt can be that way. It's just like, you hate the stink of it. So you mourn the stink of it. You mourn the feelings of guilt. But here's the thing. Feelings of guilt don't last all that long. And pretty soon, after the guilt feelings are gone, then the old pattern of life sets in again. There's no true inward change. It's just an endless cycle of guilt, remorse, and a sense of repentance to then fall right back into it because mourning the wrong thing. Just mourning the feelings of guilt without getting to the heart of the issue. That's not what Jesus has in mind, is, is, is mourning over the mere symptoms of one's sin. Or here's the third one. Mourning over one's public shame, loss of, loss of one's reputation. That is, you feel horrible because of what other people think of you. You know what comes to mind when I think about this, this third one here is um, the name Matt Lauer comes to mind. He's just one of those guys that you see on TV that's just a friendly face and a warm smile. Remember he pinched hit four years ago at the, at the uh, Winter Olympics and just seemed like such a solid dude, solid um, family man. It's just, I liked him. Like Ryan Seacrest, you know, you just like him. And then he has his past that comes out. And he made his apology. He expressed his sorrow, his mourning, over what he had done. Now, I don't know his heart, you don't know his heart. But it's possible that the sorrow finds its source in the fact that he has lost his reputation and he is now the object of social shame. If we mourn simply the fact that we were found out that we appear guilty in other people's eyes, it's not distinctively Christian. The whole world mourns these things. Everybody does, whether you're a disciple or whether you're a Christian or not. It's like people mourn their stupid mistakes. They feel bad about it. They, they mourn the sense that they feel guilty. They mourn the fact that now they're open to public shame if it's, if it's caught. That's not, that's not what Jesus has in mind here. Blessed are those who mourn. It's not, not the symptoms. So, so what is it? Like, what specifically, what kind of mourning is blessed? And here, I believe, is the heart of it. Not mourning the symptoms, but mourning the cause. Mourning the heart of the issue, and this is what it is. The, the, that inner realization that one's own sinful choices is, is ultimately a personal and relational violation of God himself. A holy God who created you, he knows you, he gave his life for you on the cross, and he loves you. 
It's personal, it's relational. At its heart, it has God at the center of it. And that, that, that's, that's, that's getting at the very heart of the issue. It's like, it's not just about the symptoms. Lord, it's, it's before you. Like, I have damaged my relationship with you, and you love me and know me and have done more to save me than anybody else ever. That is the heart of the issue. That's why King David, Psalm 51, you know, he had committed a major mistake when he slept with Bathsheba, another man's wife, adultery. Then he conspired to kill her husband, Uriah. And then he tried to cover it all up. Why he realized that while he no doubt experienced the pains of guilt, while he experienced the public shame, and while he saw the consequences of his action played out in terms of a civil war, he recognized at the heart of it, it was him and God. So he, he said, it's, I mean, let me back up and say, did he sin against Bathsheba? Yes. Did he sin against Uriah? Yes. Did he sin against the nation of Israel? Yes. But at the deepest level, he expressed 51 verse 4. He says, against you and you only have I sinned. He gets it. That is at the heart is to mourn one's own sin is sin. To mourn one's own violation of God who created you. That's, that's, at the, that's at the heart of it. And I believe that's the mourning that Jesus has in mind here. Is, is the mourning over the fact that I have, I have violated God himself in my sinful choices. And every sinful choice at the end of the day is... is um, at its deepest level, is between us and uh, us and God. If you steal from somebody, it's because you're either not content with what God has given you, you are, you you don't believe He's good in the moment in what He provides and what He withholds. At the end of the day, it's 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 about your relationship with God at the deepest level. So, there is where the mourning comes from. Blessed are those who mourn at this level, like they get it. Lord, it's I broke relationship with you. And when that happens, there's a sweetness. That is at the heart of it, is mourning over your own relationship with God and what sin does in terms of a violation. Theologian by the name of A.W. Pink hit the nail right on the head when he said this. He says, Godly sorrow is one which has respect wholly to God, for it is one which he demands, one which he produces, and one which leads to himself. So you might be thinking, okay, well, all right, I hear you. This is the morning Jesus is talking about. Is not only am I bankrupt in here, but I'm, I mourn over the fact that my relationship with God has been um, damaged by it. Uh, so how do I get there? I've made my mistakes. I don't feel remorse at all, or I don't feel a sense of sorrow, at least not the kind of sorrow you're describing. What can I do? Do I just... Because this is something else we do. He's, maybe if I beat myself up enough, I'll get to the place where I feel bad. Right? It's like, put that stinky chicken around your neck. If it stays there long enough, maybe I'll, I'll mourn the fact that I have violated my relationship with God. Or remember the old days when in order to um, teach your, or potty train your dog, probably get arrested for this now, but you stick his nose in his urine and, and you throw him outside and pretty soon he learns not to do it anymore. 
Maybe if I stuck my nose in it enough, you just go, Dan, take another whiff of that and see how bad it is. Maybe you'll feel bad. This is something, as I said last week, that the Spirit of God does in your heart. He might be doing it right now, in which he speaks through the truth, and you begin to experience the mourning that only he can produce in your life. I think this whole sermon, this sermon of Jesus, presupposes the new birth, that the Spirit of God has come into your life. You can't do it by yourself. It's something that God does in you. But when it happens, it's, it's sweet. It's, there's a sense in which you experience freedom. And there's like this, this happiness of release and surrender to get to that place where it's like, all right, Lord, it's, this is against you. It is a sweet place. It's, it's as if in that moment, God as your father says, oh, you get it. And now that you get it, I just, I want to communicate my love to you. And there's a sweetness that God communicates to his people when they come to this place of mourning their sin. The sin is sin, not the symptoms. And that's where the happiness begins, is when we come to that place, there is the beginning of restoration. And there is where change begins to take place. That's why Paul said it leads to repentance. Here, at the root of it all, is, is the beginning of change. And to the one who mourns this way, Jesus says, um, that's the second part of the verse, right? There go my glasses. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There's this thing in, in um, uh, Greek studies that they call a divine passive. You ever notice this is in a passive here? It says, right? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. It's like the, Matthew is a, a gospel that was written primarily to Jewish people, and the Jewish people don't like to overuse the name of God. And so in order to minimize the use of the name of God, they'll put things in what they call the divine passive of, for they shall be comforted. Well, comforted by who? Divine passive. Comforted by God. That's the, that's the sense. That those who mourn this way, the, the godly mourning, God comes in and he comforts. There's a divine comforting. There's, I, 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 I picture the, the, the prodigal son, right, who goes on his own way. He's a rebel. And it says, the text says that he, he comes to his right mind. That is, there's this sense of I see myself for who I am and naturally a sense of mourning. He runs back to his father. And the text tells us the father sees him. He runs to him. He falls on him, kisses his neck, and embraces him. It's like the mournful person experiences the joy of an embrace by a God who loves you. To say, I love you so much that everything I have is yours. That is the comfort. That is the comfort that, that God gives to those who mourn. And that is the source of, 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 of joy, of knowing that, man, Jesus, you went to the cross and you paid so that, so that I could be forgiven and fully and completely embraced as one of your own. Despite the fact that I'm impoverished on the inside. That's where the joy comes from. The sweetness of mourning the right thing, not just the symptoms, but the heart of it. And it's a, it's a relational thing, and then God is pleased, pleased. He delights in the fact that his people mourn over their sin. That's what it says in Psalm 51, right? David says, you don't delight in sacrifices. He says, you delight, you take pleasure in a man of a contrite and broken spirit. 
That is to know that when you're in that place of mourning, not only does he delight in you, but he gives you a sense that he's delighted in you. And there's a sense of joy and forgiveness, all of which comes to us through Christ, right? I mean, the whole purpose of his coming from the beginning of Matthew to the end of the Matthew is, is to give himself as a, as a sacrifice for sin. I mean, Matthew 1.21, the angel tells Joseph, name him Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sin. Not just the condemnation of sin and the guilt of sin, but one day the presence of sin. And that is part of our comfort. Not only does he, he begin the work of healing our hearts now through the cross and through what Jesus did, saying, I love you and you've been forgiven, um, as we continue to mourn, because it's this side of heaven, this side of death, we're going to continue to struggle with our sin, which means this is going to be a perpetual experience. Charles Spurgeon once said many years ago, he said, sorrow for sin is a perpetual rain. I love this. A sweet, soft shower, which to a truly gracious man lasts all his life long, but there is a sweet sorrow, a healthy sorrow. This is part of the marks of a disciple of Jesus is that we know that we're inwardly impoverished and we, we mourn over the cause of our sin. That is the heart of the issue, not just the symptoms. And in so doing, God is pleased to communicate himself to us and his love to us and his forgiveness to us so that we actually experience the joy of the Lord. And someday, now this is future tense here, someday we aren't going to have to struggle anymore. It's not going to be a mark of a true disciple because someday mourning is going to be gone when Jesus returns, right? I mean, that's the end of the Bible. It's like, he, wipe, he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning. It'll be done. And I look forward to that day. But the question for us this morning, especially as we come to the Lord's table, you know, the cup represents the blood of Jesus and the bread represents his body. That is the place where God embraced us um, in love and accepted us uh, through the sacrifice of his own son. It's a good time to come to the question and ask yourselves, how is it that I've been dealing with my, my mistakes? Maybe past mistakes. Maybe present sin. Are you simply sorrowing over consequences? Over the guilt you feel? Or the shame? Or have you come to the place where you recognize, all right, Lord, this is between you and me? Because it's in that you and me and embracing what he did for you and his love for you that you'll find restoration and you will find sweetness and you will find the joy of the Lord again. So as we come, it's a perfect question to ask yourself, why is it that I sorrow? And just ask the Spirit of God to bring you back to the center, back to the place where you will be blessed by him. Most of you know how we do this, but I know we always have a few new people. I'm going to pray. And if I could have our servers come up while I pray, um, when I'm done praying, feel free to come forward if you're a follower of Jesus as a reminder of what he did for you. Um, we have gluten-free and regular bread. You just need to ask for it. And again, this is a time for the community of faith disciples to gather around and just be reminded. Um, just form some lines and, and uh, David's going to play some music and allow this to be a time of introspection and reflection for you. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for um, this great sermon of Jesus. I thank you for the fact that you deal so tenderly with us 
and that um, it seems ironic and it seems backwards that the way to joy is through tears. And yet, this is the way it is, to see the world as it really is, not to live in a fiction or a lie, but to see it as it is, but to know that you love us in spite of it. Help us this morning, Lord, as we take these uh, sacred elements, um, just to be reminded of this truth and explore the question of why we mourn. In Christ's name I pray.